0: Welcome to the podcast of Data and Analytics in Business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got great Anderson, Greg is the vice president of sales, APEC at Tech Target, which is a company listed at Nasdaq in the state. The company is the leading of the global field of the purchase intent driven marketing. In what Greg is going to share with us in this episode. Is extremely, extremely interesting and very unique case of the using of the donor to help driving sales and the marketing into B2B business. Well, some of you may have heard of the purchase intent-driven marketing, but often that is the case that is done in the B2C market. But rarely one would come across in the B2B industry because it's so much harder and also the decision maker is not just compliance of a single person. So Greg will go into a great details of like how the whole idea of the intent-driven marketing and their priority engine is working for the B2B industry, serving specifically for the software and tech companies. I think the other thing that is worthwhile highlighting as you are listening to this episode is I think that tech Market and Greg, they are essentially building a new market as the macro economy is changing. What I mean by macro economy is changing is that as people are moving more and more online and becoming more comfortable in doing a lot of the transaction, doing a lot of the research on the internet, they have successfully captured and crafted that area of the segment for themselves in serving their customer. And they are able to digitize a lot of those touch points that used to happen in the offline world, but now as they are moving into the online world, they are not only they are able to capture that, they are able to digitize that. If you are serving a lot of the customer in the offline world and you have been thinking about how to digitize to capture a lot of those data and information so that you can do data and analytics. Or if you are wanted to understand how the B2B sales and marketing world is changing, this is really the episode that you should not be missing. If you have any question, please feel free to send me a question or send it to Greg. And uh, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for coming on to the Analytic Show podcast. I'm
1: super duper excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure to be on. I've appreciated some of the earlier podcasts. I found some new podcasts and listening to those. So really excited to be part of that roster of great leaders that you've had on.
0: <laughs> I hope this one will be different and its own value. Now, let's start with something light. So do you want to share with us about your role of Vice President of Sales at Tech Target. What are your major responsibilities
1: here? Yeah, happy to go into that. <laughs> yes, well, as you mentioned, my name is Greg Anderson. I'm the Vice President of Sales for Tech Target's Asia Pacific business. So, in my role, I'm responsible for all sales across Asia Pacific. We have offices in Sydney, in Singapore, as well as in Bangalore. So, I'm responsible for the entire sales team which is made up of a few different functions, SDR, field account execs, enterprise account managers. On a day-to-day basis, I work in and out with these guys on account strategy, on sales strategy to help with the accounts, but at a broader level, continuously I'm responsible for the strategic direction of our sales plays, of our sales motions, of our account planning, forecasting the business, making sure we hit quarterly numbers. Tech Target is a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ, ticker is TTGT, so making sure that we are keeping the investors happy, hiring, onboarding, coaching, territory assignments. We're headquartered in the U.S., so a lot of HR things as well. So between myself and our managing director, John Panker, we kind of act as a number of different departments, but predominantly sales, driving revenue, making sure that our team is successful. Can so relate to that the sales revenue <laughs> as a business owner. So I think this is
0: what gets me super excited about this interview. Now for some of the audience may not necessarily be familiar with the tech target. Do you mind to share with us a little bit about the company and tech target? And uh, as you have been with them for 13 years now, maybe share with us a little bit of the uh, behind the scenes story, evolution and growth over the years.
1: Yeah, happy to. So, Tech Targets, we've actually been in business for 20 years, started in 1999 as a publishing company. But our predominant services and value to customers is we provide marketing and sales enablement services to other B2B technology companies. So we work with the IBMs and Microsofts of the world to help them identify their target audiences and get in front of those audiences in a smarter, more efficient and intelligent way through our publishing based intent platform which I can get into in a little bit. So essentially, we built the business off of providing purchase cycle content for technology buyers. So we have in-house about 200 editors who spend all day every day creating content to educate technology buyers. And now more than ever, when organizations are investing in technology to improve agility and efficiencies, there's a lot of research that needs to happen. And they'll typically go to Google. And when they go to Google to search for, say, hybrid cloud, they're going to find tech target sites. So we own and operate 140 sites, all of the content created by our experts and analysts and contributors with the purpose of helping to make technology buyers, helping them make smarter, more informed buying decisions. So we've got a tremendous audience of buyers on our sites. And from there, we're able to identify exactly who's in market for cloud ERP, exactly who's in market for DevOps tools in North America versus maybe endpoint security solutions in Australia. And we can do that because all of the content is free, but it's reg protected. So our audience has to come in, exchange their contact information, business details to access really in-depth buyer's guides. And that gives us a wealth of information about not only which companies we know to be in market, which individuals to be in market and really where they sit in the buy cycle. So with that data, we work with a lot of marketing and sales teams to help them make sure that their message hits the right person at the right time, that their sales reps have the contact info of the right buyer on the team and they've got the hooks to personalize their outreach to set more meetings. So exclusively for B2B tech companies, you know, I think we've got a great brand in the industry, but if you're not in B2B tech, if you're not in the marketing teams, you may not have heard of Tech Target in in terms of my journey with tech target as you mentioned it's it's been 13 years 13 great years i started in boston as an account manager so straight out of college i went to boston college go eagles and i started there within our channel division so day one i think i had a list of about 600 channel partners, VARs, resellers, and just you know, went into a room and started calling and asking how we can help them generate leads through content syndication. Now in 2007, digital marketing wasn't really at the top of everybody's list, especially not channel partners and VARs, if, if you're familiar with the space. So I cut my teeth doing that, worked my way up to work with some of the larger organizations and supporting their channels. So HP, Dell, Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, That took me out to San Francisco to be closer to the headquarters of those accounts. So started to manage some of these larger global relationships, learned a lot about navigating large enterprises, complex bicycles, and things like that. And then was presented with the opportunity as we continued to expand globally to move out to our Singapore office and start to build the sales team in Asia Pacific. We had some very talented people on the ground already, but not a dedicated sales leader. So they took me out of my patch, out of my territory, put me on a plane, sent me to Singapore. And I've been out here for, shoot, almost about six years. One in Singapore, the rest down here in Sydney. And I pretty much split my time between both offices. So it's been, it's been quite the journey from account manager to VP out here. A wonderful company, great culture, great business model. We're continuing to grow and, and hit targets. So I think I got really lucky for for where I landed and the experience I've had to be able to travel the world doing it.
0: Wow, that's quite amazing. And welcome to Sydney. And also, Thank you. Uh, Singapore, I spend a little bit of time in Singapore as my transit every time when I visit uh, Malaysia. Now, I think a lot of the, quite a bit of things that you went into the details earlier in understanding that whole B2B sales and marketing, I think that is probably... About this thing that Tech Target has got, which is called the purchase intent driven marketing. Is that correct? And I suppose my own personal view is that I have learned a little bit more about the purchase intent marketing in the past, but perhaps there was a lot more in the B2C market. I suppose the question then is is it the same in the B2B market? And is it what you were describing earlier, is this the technology that you guys have and also all the works that you guys have to help the tech company with this purchase intent-driven marketing?
1: Very good question. So I think purchase-intense marketing, a lot of people are talking about intent data these days. And to your point, a lot of it is taken from B2C marketing. So Qantas Airlines trying to market to John Smith, who might want to fly to New Zealand's. So quick transactional marketing. So the idea of intent marketing is to identify different signals, different behaviors, different events that take place, typically digitally, that you can gather enough of those signals around to say, hey, there's a purchase event about to happen. And I want to make sure that I am visible before that decision happens. So for B2C... Predominantly, it, it was built off of leveraging things like cookie data, IP targeting. So if you were to go to TripAdvisor.com and start searching for hotels in Paquette, your browser is then tagged with a small piece of data, cookie data, which then that feeds into larger programmatic intent engines. So that anywhere else then you go on the web, if you go to ESPN.com or any sort of other consumer site, you're going to start to see ads for hotels in Phuket, for example. So the intent signal on that was that you had gone to a site and you searched for Phuket, and that was B2C. A lot of it is transactional, so you don't need much contact info on that. You just kind of need to be right place, right time. It's emotional decisions. They happen really quickly, and it's a single buyer. So shifting to B2B, it's a much different landscape. But because technology has gotten a lot better to be able to identify key stakeholders, marketing technology has gotten a lot better to be able to target and engage them, Um, whether it's uh, different marketing automation platforms, whether it's sales tools like a sales loft to re-engage. But the challenge with B2B is picking up that intent and really understanding its origin. And is it truly signaling that that person is intending to buy? And the challenge with B2B is that the buying teams are large. So if somebody's going to buy a purchase, a piece of enterprise software, there's multiple people involved. They come from different business functions. So the finance team, the IT team, the compliance team, legal, HR, and they enter the buy cycle at different points in time. So it's not linear. It's long three to six to nine months. So leveraging intent in B2B is really, really challenging. You can't do it with cookie data, you can't do it with just IP addresses because there's individuals on a buying team that make that decision. So what Target does to counteract that is we identify the actual buyers on decision-making teams that are doing very specific research tied to over 200 different technology segments. So we focus on people that are reading how-to guides, people that are reading vendor comparison guides. And we wouldn't just be looking at Jason Tan, we would be looking at Jason Tan and his peer Greg Anderson that are doing similar research at the same time to amalgamate a view that's going to show us the true buying team at the contact level. So that's how we're starting to use Intense for our customers and kind of solves that age-old problem of right place, right time, right messaging. Really hard to do in B2B. I think Tech Target, from at least a B2B technology standpoint, is certainly leading the charge on that, especially as privacy laws become more and more challenging to navigate specific to personal information, web scraping, cookie data, and things like that.
0: Given of what you just described, I suppose it seems like this B2B digital marketing platform has only just managed to take off probably perhaps the last 10 years, I'm just putting out the number is my best estimate. I suppose the primary reason of that is because as people are shifting and becoming more familiar and becoming more comfortable doing transaction and doing numbers of things online, and as more things are also moving online to cut costs to make it more streamlined, do you think that is the right way to say that this only has become possible over the last 10 years? Whereas before that, in the early time, a lot of these B2B transactions was done in the way that people run seminars, people run conferences, etc. in order to be able to attract people. And that is how they collect this information. Whereas this now, what you guys can do, the digital is become more scalable at the same time.
1: Yeah. So I, I couldn't agree more with that, especially in B2B. So content is king when it comes to, to technology, to any sort of purchase really online is the first thing that really anybody does, whether it's to purchase a new TV, a toaster or a new CRM system is they're going to go to Google and they're going to start to type in questions and problems. And they're going to start to do a lot of research online. So really, I think in the last 10 years, that has become the norm, moving away from events. Events have always been great because you can show a lot of flashy products. So, and if you think about where technology landscape has gone, everybody's moved away from hardware and now they've moved to software and you don't need to be in a room with software to see how it works. So you don't need to go and see the giant appliance that you're going to put into your data center and move all of your data to. You can simply see a lot of software happening from the comfort of your own chair in your office. So the internet really has hurt, I think, the events business and powered the buyers to have access to as much information that they could ever want before they'll speak with a sales rep so there's a lot of really interesting studies out there. And I think over the last 10 years, they've really ramped up because more content has gone online, more people have become comfortable. But for most B2B purchases, about 80% of that is done and completed before buying teams will ever speak with a sales rep. So it's become so challenging to be, be an enterprise organization selling to buyers because essentially they've been invisible. They have the ownership of the information they can create their shortlist without sitting down with you in a room, without showing up to an events. So you've got to make sure that you're going to where those individuals are doing research to start to insert yourself as early as you can into the buy cycle. So Target actually had an events business where we had a lot of seminars, teach people how to buy storage, teach people how to evaluate different security solutions, data center solutions. And we actually folded that, I want to say almost five years ago now. It was a very profitable business, but it's also a very expensive business and a very unpredictable business and not very scalable. So we decided to put all of our eggs in the online platform, in the digital intent-driven platform, and that's proved really, really successful for us. And I think COVID has certainly accelerated the shift to digital and the shift to online. And we we were well ahead of the curve on that one.
0: I want to go into a little bit more details about these intent, collecting the intent. And also you mentioned about the content is king. I can see where you're coming from. And also all of those 140 website where you have 200 editors building and publishing the content. Now, I suppose one of the thing as we are now also, like, as I say, the last 10 years has helped to make it take off. But at the same time, I feel like I wouldn't say it's a tail end of it, I'm not qualified to say that, but what I'm trying, I suppose the question what I'm trying to understand or the question I have is that content is king and it used to be gated content. So I, you need to give your email address and your first name, last name. And obviously people can fake email address, but that's different. Sorry. There's only 5% of the people, but as content is king and the Internet has powered so many more people to be able to create content with all the various platforms. And in fact, the podcast itself that I'm running is also creating the content. With the abundance of all of these contents, how can the gated content could be still relevant in the next five or 10 years
1: to be able to collect that intended? That is going to be, I think, a challenge. For a lot of content creators and a lot of organizations that monetize a lot of gated content and things. So the approach that TechTarget takes, and we've always taken, is we provide, I think maybe 20% of our content is gated. So we want to make sure that there is a lot of free content out there. And what you need to do as a content creator is to make sure that you can establish yourself as a trusted resource a safe place that you can return to from time and time again to get valuable, credible information that can actually help you make decisions. Now, I think in B2B tech, all of the information, there's a lot of in-depth information and a lot of research that needs to happen around specific technologies, around specific products, around specific integration strategies and things like that. So our approach is to go in and to gate the contents that, you know, it might be a 15-page ebook on how to build out an entire DevOps team. Or, you know, it might be a a 14 or a 10-minute podcast on how to implement certain solutions. So what we want to do is we want to get people to the sites, have them start to trust us, have some premium content that people... See as enough value to exchange their contact information with. Obviously, never any people are not going to pay for content anymore. Your contact information is your currency to pay for that. And the other bit of being able to gate content is it should be gated once create a community where you subscribe, all you have to do is to be logged in and that's gonna allow you to do two things. Look at every piece of content from there on in without having to log in many times, but also it's gonna bring updates to you proactively as a consumer. So that's the other value that you wanna make sure that you provide is say, hey, if you give me your contact information to access this content, we're gonna make sure that you stay updated about all of the new content. You never have to come back to us to check to see if there's anything new and interesting. We'll send you an email. We'll post something on LinkedIn if you're in our channel to be able to see that. And because you've opted in once, you can just come back and access that. So it's really about the quality, the credibility, and the future exchange of information that you need to sell to an audience to make them comfortable to give you their contact info. Because again, they're selling themselves to you you know they're buying your information with their personal details and you have to be really really careful about that and value that exchange
0: so with this 140 website that tech target is maintaining or collecting all of this intent do you guys own and maintain all these website and also from the content creation perspective is how do you maintain such a huge network of the content publisher
1: Yep. So of all the 140 sites, we maintain all of them. Technically, it's all tied to one site. So if you go to any one of our websites, for example, if you go to www.searchcio.com or www.searchcloudcomputing.com, they will all redirect to a techtarget.com domain. So they're all actually entry points into a techtarget.com site. And the clever thing that we did, and I'll probably admit it was by accident, is we've named all of our sites tied to the technology that we write about within that site. So it helps a lot with SEO. So we're found very often with Google, we've got over a million first page ranked keywords within Google. So our cloud site is all content on enterprise cloud computing. So we're found very often within that. But then we've got a large editorial team, about 200 individuals. And then they're siloed into different experts for specific technology areas. So we have our experts on DevOps. We have our experts on cybersecurity. We have our experts on storage. And those teams go out into the market and talk to technology buyers to understand the problems that they have, to understand what they're implementing. And then we talk to technology vendors to understand what sort of products they're coming out with, what sort of problems they're solving with their solutions as well. So it's a really large network. We produce all of the content on there. We've got a brilliant publishing team that creates content based off of actual research. So we do very little news content. So news content typically has a shelf life of maybe 36 hours. We create a lot of evergreen content so that if you know, you decide to finally migrate to the cloud or implement a hybrid cloud strategy, we may have written an article last year that is going to be relevant today. So we create the content based off what the market needs are and we understand what the market needs are based off of surveying our audience. So we've got over 20 million opt-in members. And twice a year, we ask them, what are the investments you're going to make in the next 12 months? Rank them from your top priority. Tell us what are the key considerations for those investment areas. And then what we do in return is we will create content for them to help them make those decisions. We'll go and talk to the vendors they need to evaluate. We'll compare and contrast different solutions to solve those problems. So it's a great exchange of value where the audience tells us what they need and they trust us to go and deliver the information to help them solve those problems. So
0: my other question then have is, can the businesses also display apps on your content networks?
1: Yep, Yeah. so we have a full suite of marketing services. So it stems from content syndication, taking your assets, white papers, podcasts, putting them on our sites and serving them to the audience, different types of lead generation, custom content, but also display ads. And what's really valuable about our sites, we always wanna protect our audience. So we actually don't allow any programmatic advertising on our sites. So all of the advertising comes directly through TechTarget so that we can control what message our audience sees. So you'll never see an airline advertisement on our sites. You'll never see insurance advertisement on our sites. We're only going to serve ads to our audience that are relevant to the technology they're searching for. So the audience is always surrounded with relevant and helpful information. But for the advertiser, if you're selling data analytics products, we're only going to serve your ad to people that are reading on searchbusinessintelligence.com or searchenterpriseai.com. So the contextual relevancy is kind of a primary value that we deliver to our advertisers with the display ads, but also the value goes right back to the audience because they're seeing and being introduced to brands they may not be aware of, but can help them with the problems they're trying to solve.
0: Now, given that it is a B2B market or industry and the sales cycle typically takes six to nine months, I suppose my question then for you is, how important is the real-time information in collecting and also showing all this signal and sending all these different signal and information to the buyer
1: and the seller? So we try to make it as real-time as possible for the advertiser as well as for the reader. So for the reader, the real-time is we make sure we serve an ad that's relevant to the topics that they're reading about. And then within about 24 hours, those of the 20 million members that we have, if you read an article about containers or data management or cloud data management, the next day, you're going to get a newsletter with curated contents specific to those topics. So we make sure that if Jason Tan comes to me on a Wednesday and you look at 10 articles on a specific topic, we want to make sure that you get... 10 more articles in your inbox the next day to help you continue that journey, but also to encourage more and more engagements on our sites. Because the more that we can see you reading content from us, reading content from technology companies, shifting from early stage to late stage content, the more we can understand where you might be in the buy cycle and the smarter we can be about how we target you with more advertisements and the better information we can give to our customer sales reps as well to hopefully then engage you with with more helpful information. So we try to have that about as, as, as real time as possible.
0: That's amazing. I suppose the question that I'm interested to know in that regard then is the sales rep or the sales team from your customer who would then be selling all this tech software when and how would they come into the conversation then? I, th- I suppose it would be kind of weird, Is right? I suppose if the reader who is reading the website and next day they receive a call from Microsoft, hey, thank you for looking at <laughs> the website. I know that you're interested to buy Azure. Let me help you out. <laughs> so how do you make that transition as smooth as possible?
1: We do that a few ways. The first one is providing training and resources to the sales teams at our customers to teach them to not do that because people are happy to get relevant messages. If you need to purchase a cloud monitoring solution, it's your job to make that decision and you don't want to make the wrong decision. So you want as much relevant information as possible. To share with your boss to share with your peers to say hey we've looked at everything around cloud monitoring so you're going to welcome anything coming your way that can help you make that decision and ensure that you don't make the wrong decisions however if somebody reaches out and says i know you've been doing this and i know you've been doing that so let me sell you this that is not a good customer experience so the way that we help with that we have a product called priority engine Priority Engine essentially is access to our backend database. And we actually help to visualize all of the accounts that are in market for your specific solution. More importantly, we show you every contact at that account that has opted in, consumed content relevant to your solution, and not just at the aggregate, but at the individual level. So if I'm Microsoft and I'm looking at Wells Fargo, and I can see 15 people in Priority Engine that are all doing research on cloud monitoring. I can click on Jason Tan's name, see all of your contact information. I can see that the top things you've looked at in the last week are relevant to digital transformation, to cloud security, and to something tied to data analytics. And then I might click on Greg Anderson's name, a BI developer. And the things that I might be looking at relevant to cloud monitoring are DevSecOps or container management and things like that. So what this does, and it's, I think it's the first solution out there to have prospect level intent data, is now as a sales rep at Microsoft, what I can do is I know exactly what to say to Jason Tan to pique his interest. So the email that I send to you is going to be specific to digital transformation and cloud security and the email that i sent to greg anderson you know that bi developer is going to be specific to container management and when you as a buyer receive relevant information regardless if it's from a sales rep if it's presented in a value driven way that it wants to offer more help and support that's going to further the conversation it's not about qualifying it's about curating content informing and advising people on how to help them buy so, we give access to this tool, we give access to this data, and the way that we teach the sales reps to use it is essentially to call up Jason, introduce yourself as the account manager from whatever company that may be, maybe it's from Microsoft, and simply use the information that we know, but not in a, not sharing exactly why you know it. So, the call might go something like this. Hi, Jason. This is Greg. I'm your account manager for Microsoft. The reason for my call today is that we work with many financial organizations that are really struggling to evaluate the cloud monitoring software that might be out there, particularly around cloud security and digital transformation. So we have some great research briefs and studies that I'd love to send you if that sounds like a position that you might be in and if you think that might be valuable to you. Would it be okay if I shared some of that? You're gonna say yes, because that's exactly what you're researching for. I'm not asking you for your time or a meeting. I'm simply asking for permission to send you helpful information to help you make a decision. And that's gonna elevate me as a sales rep in my organization as a valuable partner in that process. Whereas all of the other outreach that that person is getting is gonna be product offers, requests for meetings, and SDR is trying to qualify whether they have budget authority, need and time. So we're helping to position you as a valuable partner early on in the buy cycle. And the only way that we can do that is because we know who you are, what you're interested in right now, and we can put that in the hands of sales reps and marketers almost in real time.
0: That is amazing, great. Can I just put it in a different way to describe that? Which is I think what you guys are doing is pretty much digitizing the offline activity that the real world in the physical world over the last 100, 200 years, with all these things that you guys are doing, like, for example, when people are reading this content, when they want to go into the gated content, they have read this, read that. All of those things that used to happen in the offline when they were perhaps inquiring certain product. But then all those activity that happened in the offline in the past had always be recorded by human. And if we were going to rely on human to do that, it would never be able to be consistent. But what you guys are doing now is digitize that whole offline activity and
1: that becomes data that is valuable at the right time. Exactly. And we, we really try to help, you know, one of the biggest challenges for sales and marketing teams is to get into that buy cycle early. So everybody now has an ABM strategy an account-based marketing strategy. And we work with a lot of organizations and we see a lot of their account lists. And, you know, in Australia, this will make sense that the big four banks are on everybody's target account list, And everybody wants to talk to the IT directors at the big four banks. So I feel bad for whoever the IT director is at Commonwealth Bank because that person is on everybody's lists. Their LinkedIn is full of messages, their inbox is full of messages, but we don't know what that person is actually interested in. So what we try to help to do is, you know, ComBank might not actually be in the market for cloud monitoring, but this small startup just around the corner whose name you don't know might. And we can surface that within priority engine because we're tracking that behavior. So focusing on accounts that you know to be in market, and that's where you want to burn your calories as a marketer, burn your calories as a sales rep, put your effort to them because your yield is going to be so much higher. So the smarter companies can be about account selection when it's time for outreach, the smarter they can be about contact selection, not just by title, but truly by interest and the smarter they can be about how to personalize that outreach and engagement on the sales and marketing, they're going to cut through the noise. They're going to get a lot more mindshare. They're going to get a lot more meetings, more opportunities, more closed business off of that. So that's that's the problem that we're solving for many of our customers. And that's a problem that many customers, regardless of the industry, face. And you know, I'm sure there's a similar tech target solution for financial services and things like that out there. But the key is finding the individuals who are interested for your solutions, not just the companies that you're maybe tracking IP addresses on or just the big names that you think you want to go after because they're on everybody's list.
0: I got a funny question for you. Do you think you guys are making the job of the account manager redundant very (laughs) soon?
1: I don't think so. I think we're making the job of the call center probably redundant because no longer do you need to employ 100 people to call through a phone book to hopefully get a meeting. And there's all sorts of challenges with that. One of the first ones being, it's not great for your brands to have people that don't know your business as much to go after it. I think that we're making the role of the account manager easier so that they can spend more time crafting smarter, more personalized outreach to the most valuable prospects at the most relevant accounts at any point in time. So if my team can get as many appointments and open up as many opportunities by doing 20 activities a day, as another team can through doing 200 activities a day, that's great. My team can be smarter, more agile, less burnouts. My deals will be larger because they're not trying to move so quickly. So I think we're making it more efficient. We're probably making it harder for call centers, frankly, to be to be relevant, at least within our space. You know, there's different spaces that velocity makes a lot of sense, but where curated approach, personalized approach makes sense, timing is everything getting in there. I think we're making those sales reps more efficient. Definitely making marketers more efficient in the process as well.
0: You certainly are uh, empowering the account manager. I suppose the final question on that, whole intent and priority engine I have is that time is always a critical factor when it comes to the marketing and sales. And that whole remarketing as say for example, as soon as I go to this particular website and uh, looking at the product, I will always be hit with that ad, whether I go to Facebook or any other site, to remind me how much I should love that product. (laughs) Which is okay. But Given that the challenges of the B2B market or the sales cycle is so long, how do you know what is the right duration in terms of serving that ad or serving, continue paying attention to that intent? And how do you know when is the right time to end? I suppose from, the, from your customer perspective is that if someone has already bought the product, I do not want to continue to pay for the money that continue to remind people who just bought the product.
1: Yeah, I think that's a big problem in B2C. I think the point of your question is in B2C, I think there's a lot of, there's actual time frame of the value of that data. So the signal that in the example I gave earlier, the signal of you going to tripadvisor.com and searching for a hotel in Phuket, I think the standard is that's valuable for 14 days typically a purchase for B2C is going to be made within 14 days of any sort of hotel search on that. So you shouldn't be using that cookie information targeting after that. In B2B, those sales cycles can be as short as 30 days, but are as long as a year. So that's where the challenge of programmatic advertising, using cookies to target people on non-contextually relevant sites, um, you risk targeting, again, non-relevant individuals. So what you want to do is just always be visible where your audience is and where they're engaged. So I think that the contextual relevancy in any industry is going to become paramount, especially as cookies move away. So as long as somebody is reading an article on how to do X or how to buy Y, that person is still going to be valid. But the recency of the data, whether it's somebody reading a website, whether it's somebody downloading an ebook or listening to a podcast, you really need to pay attention to that. So if anybody listening to this is planning to purchase data or to target people with data, two key questions you want to ask is, what is the source of that data? And then what is the recency of that data? Because there is an expiration date on the value. So with, with Tech Target, we set that expiration date as 90 days. So anything that you see within Priority Engine or anybody that we target with your content will only look at people that have been active within a 90-day window. Because we see in our own emails and we send millions of emails a year to our audience, we see the drop-off within the first 30 days is the highest. 30 to 60 drops a little bit. And then anything after 90 is almost non-existent from engagement rates. So if you do want to use a rule of thumb in B2B tech... 90 days is good, but 24 hours to a week is always best. So that's why we try to refresh our data as soon as possible with content, but also within Priority Engine. We refresh it every week so that you see a new stack ranking of accounts, a new stack ranking of prospects, a new stack ranking of the intent data at the prospect level. So you're always going for the freshest, most relevant organizations, individuals, and interests.
0: At the early of the conversation, you mentioned about the Privacy Act and the regulation is making things more challenging, especially I think this is the case for the B2C market, right? So from the B2B market perspective of what you guys have to do, what are the challenges and is it as stringent as in the B2C market?
1: I would say it's it's more stringent in the B2B market. Maybe not more stringent, but I think you're more at risk in the B2B market. Because I think B2B relies more on personal information, you know, your name, your email, your job function, and targeting on that. There's not many call centers that target people for a toaster, but there's plenty of call centers that target people for uh, new CRM products. So in the B2B space, I'd say there's just more high risk because there's more personal information involved. We know that California Consumer Privacy Act is a challenge for anybody that harbors cookie data and things like that. That's becoming harder to use. GDPR has come out, and that's really kind of shining a spotlight on organizations that collect data in nefarious ways through web scraping, through buying third-party databases and things like that. So it's very much challenging. Thankfully on our side, because we do have the publishing based model, we have a direct engagement in agreement with our audience. So the agreement is, if you see our content is valuable, you will exchange your contact information in order to access that. And in that exchange, we require a double opt-in to opt into tech targets privacy policy, but also to us sharing the data with our partners for email, phone, and everything, so that it is 100% compliant for us to pass your information on to the next marketer at the key accounts at IBM or Microsoft or the next sales rep. So we got lucky that we built our business off that, I think, because of the publisher model. Privacy regulations are going to challenge a lot of businesses that are built off of web scraping buying third-party data. The other thing is, as marketers, you have to be really careful with who you have in your CRM system. So you have to be able to prove where you got the contact info of individuals. You have to make sure there's an explicit opt-in. You have to make sure there's an explicit opt-out. And when those individuals, hopefully they don't, but when they inevitably do opt-out, that you remove them from your system and they don't go into marketing automation because there's really heavy fines. So... For us, we're well-protected. It has made it a bit more challenging to do business from a paperwork standpoint because everybody is so conscious about privacy policy. So, you know, I spend a lot of time reviewing privacy policies and master service agreements, which is a good thing because people are taking it serious. But I think it's gonna be a really challenging thing for a lot of businesses that aren't built off of the one-to-one relationship with an audience, such as a, a tech target or a LinkedIn or a Facebook or something like that.
0: The third-party data is amazing. Then, on a daily basis, how many emails I get in my spam folder who try to sell me the user who use certain software, so
1: that I use <laughs> those data to target them. I get a lot from VMware. I don't know if VMware's customer database was exposed, but there's so many who says, "Hey, would you like to target everybody using VMware?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know where you got that info? Is <laughs> amazing
0: that the numbers of the email that I get every single day. So I can totally relate to it. And, and, and buying, I think, I mean, I have done business in B2C and the B2B market. I mean, imagine that buying those data and then sending people email to entice them to buy your product is hard enough in the B2C market. Like for example, a hundred dollars for a pair of shoes, it's going to be so much more difficult in the B2B market where the purchase is hundreds, of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars. So I just cannot imagine how would that work? I got so much offer of
1: that. Yeah. It's not a space that I think is going to thrive and survive much longer because contacts, contact information has really become a commodity. I think you can get it from anywhere. So, understanding who the right contacts are in the context of what they care about and how you can help them with your solution is so much more valuable. But yeah, it's amazing how many databases are floating around being sold for pennies on the dollar. And again, if you were to buy that, you put yourself at risk for purchasing non-compliance information. Furthermore, you don't know how actionable that is. So if you buy a thousand names and the information is outdated and then you pay your sales team to call through the 1,000 names, you're not going to get that time or that money back. You just paid sales to do that where they could have focused on 100 very relevant names, understanding what they're interested in and a lot more success. So it's a lot more than just the data purchase. It's the investment you need to action that after and the risk of purchasing invalid and inaccurate data. Was far beyond the initial cost of that purchase.
0: I agree. So, what kind of companies or industry are getting the most benefit of the intent-driven marketing data technology offered by Tech
1: Target? So, as the name would maybe hints, we exclusively work with technology companies. So, software, hardware, services. So, we've got over thirteen hundred customers, and you know, while it is a, a niche space in terms of our customer base in our audience, it really works out well because there's so much information that needs to be gathered from buying teams to really understand how to make a different purchase. And it's really hard to find those individuals. So while it is a niche space, you know, we provide a lot of value to really anybody from a large Microsoft organization to you know, smaller startups or even resellers, maybe consultancies that just want to identify other small businesses that need help setting up their, their router and things like that. So we try to cater to really anybody that can sell any sort of technology.
0: So from what you described, it sounds like not only you're serving the large enterprise, but you will be able to serve the SMB business as well.
1: Yeah, correct. I do think we are, well, I know that we are premium priced and you do need the ability to certainly scale and to action some of the data, but we've got different services to to scale down to SMBs that need some small advertising and very targeted advertising. I mentioned I started, you know, in our channel business where I worked with regional solution providers, regional VARs that, And we're reselling EMC at the time to maybe just individuals in the state of New York. So we were able to service some of those organizations at that size. Yeah, if anybody's listening from a technology organization, feel free to get in touch. I can redirect you to anybody you need to speak with in any of our offices in the US, Europe, and APAC. Well, I got to get a pitch in there. (laughs) (laughs) Would you mind to share with us some of the success story? There's a lot. There's a lot. As you'd imagine, it is challenging to get organizations to go on the record and talk about success that they've had with our products, mainly because it's tied to deals they've won, ROI that they're able to see. And if you're Microsoft, you don't want to go out there and shout from the rooftops that you found a solution to help you sell more, because Google and Amazon are going to jump right on that as well. But we have a lot of customer testimonials, case studies in the site, a few of them, uh, one being this, interestingly enough, an organization, Operatics, whose business is actually to set appointments for other technology companies. So they actually worked with us to use Priority Engine as their data source for that. And through a pretty large trial, they were able to confirm that they were able to double the amount of uh, opportunities that they could create with just as many phone calls and emails to other databases that they've worked with. Just recently, can't reveal the name of the vendor, but you know, there was a six-figure investment made with TechTarget, which is not small. But the return for that vendor was $33 million in ROI and $7 million in closed business directly attributed to the engagements that they have on our sites. And then there's some just kind of smaller testimonials. One on our site that I really like is from a sales manager at Pure Storage who basically says the reps on my team that are over 100% of our, their number are the only ones that are using Priority Engine. So I thought that was a great testament to the value of the product, the value of the data, the use case from a sales perspective. But yeah, there's, there's a number of other ones. We recently published a great case study with ServiceNow for some of the larger service-oriented organization you can check out on techtarget.com. It's it's probably a a 10-page case study on how they've implemented the data into almost every facet of their sales and marketing strategy. So powering their events, so now their webcasts, recruitments, their sales outreach, their key accounts identifiers, cross-selling and upselling, so where they may have been focused on HR, being able to shift over to customer experience and find other buyers on those teams... So it seems like every other week, we've got a nice new testimonial to put up there to both encourage more customers, but hopefully build more and more confidence on the value of using digital intent data, smarter marketing, and sales outreach that may not have that instant gratification of shaking somebody's hands at an event, but over time proves tremendously valuable in making sure you get on the shortlist and inevitably that PO
0: i very much agree and i think that is uh, really unique and a uh, smart use of the data is to be honest with you this is the first time i have heard of all of these things so and finding it extremely exciting especially as a business owner now, who in the space of the b2b i can understand i can relate to how difficult it is in terms of the b2b the marketing and the sales cycle so that it's so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. But it almost brings us to the end of this interview. And these are the two questions that I typically ask. What is
1: your most important first principle? I think that that's a great question, which is a nice filler for me to think about it for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I use that a lot uh, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I like to go with a lot of different quotes and things and talk to the sales team, but... One that I, I really resonates with me and always like to think about is the biggest threat to future success is current success. And I love that quote. I heard it on a podcast a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. You can peel that apart, but it basically just says, never be complacent. Never be satisfied with where you are, because all of the effort that you had to get in there is going to be for nothing if you just sit idle for that. You're either going forwards or you're going backwards. And as a business, we're doing really, really well now. Just everybody's had to shift digital, and I try to reinforce that with my team often. Is you guys may be doing well and ahead of your number, but there's a lot of competition out there trying to swarm and come after that. So don't get complacent have that same fire that you had when you were at 50% of your number. And that's not just with sales. That's not just with business. That's with anything that's with your fitness. That's with your relationship. So just because you're successful today, it's really easy to lose that if you stop putting in the same amount of effort and drive that you had to get to that point. So I'd probably say that's, that would be my first, first principle.
0: If you don't mind, I'm just going to comment on that is that I think that happens a lot in the large enterprise. And also the problem sometimes with the large enterprise is that the organization is so large. I mean, say, for example, the $2 billion revenue that you just made last year, everyone is trying to get a piece of it, saying, well, that was because of my work. right?" <laughs> and then in a different way is that what you were saying, I think this seems is like very similar to the tagline of uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon. He say, it's always day one because yeah because that to him is like is day one we are only just getting started never stay comfortable
1: <laughs> yeah i think you know if you if you were able to build a business by getting up at 5am every day and getting into it and grinding and working really hard then just because you've hit a certain benchmark doesn't mean you should sleep in till 7 because things will start to go wrong for that now, I don't think I wouldn't condone working 18 hours a day and breaking your back, but definitely not getting complacent, always putting in that work. Again, I, I do think it's professional, but also whether it's athletics and fitness and relationships, it's just always really important to know that you've never made it. There's always more. It's kind of like you know Simon Sinek's recent book, The Infinite Game. So those that are playing for a zero sum, I finally won. They're typically the ones that lose in the long run. But those that recognize there's always the ability to get better. There's always a new competitor or challenge that's going to come up. And if you're not prepared for it and working to overcome it, if and when it does come up, then, you know, that is when you lose. So always playing to win the infinite game that really never has an end, I think, is a great way to to look at business and to look at life.
0: I agree. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been a better for your younger self to have?
1: That's a tough question that I was looking at. Cause I honestly couldn't think of any book that, and I thought if I had that when I was younger, I, I would have made different decisions. I, you know I'm pretty happy with a lot of the decisions that I've made. The first one that that does come to mind is a book I'd, I'd highly recommend that everybody reads. It's called trillion dollar coach. If you've read trillion dollar coach, I would have liked to have that when I first got into management. So I guess that that makes sense, is moving from a sales rep to a leader without really any sort of stepping stone to that or really any... Uh, I was 10,000 miles away from headquarters. So I thought that was really good to give principles on how to lead and how to build a business and how to manage a team. Story of Bill Campbell, he sadly has passed away last few years, he was an older gentleman in Silicon Valley and was, I think, one of the original CEOs or VPs at Intuit. And he just quietly was known as the coach of Silicon Valley. The book was was written by Eric Schmitz. He was an advisor to Larry Page. He worked with Sheryl Sandberg. All of the big names would all attribute a lot of their success and a lot of their best practices to this guy, Bill Campbell. And he was just a very... Simple, straight to the point, blue collar guy that was able to break down problems, connect with people, did it in a bit of a brash fashion, but simple things like your one-on-one meetings are the most important with team members. So that's not something you use as a tick box. That one-on-one meeting is, is tremendously important for you and for that team member. So probably rambling a little bit about the book, but I can't recommend it enough. Great story, great guy doesn't have the accolades that he probably deserves. So I, I would recommend it. And personally, I like the audiobook because they do the voice of Bill Campbell and he's got this old, kind of the kind of old football coach gritty type voice and he likes to curse a lot. So it's not necessarily PG.
0: The copy that I listened to was the audiobook as well, but I didn't pick up. It was the voices of like an old gentleman coach, perhaps because I was listening at the speed of two, which is so some... <laughs> <think it's now. laughs>
1: You got to go back and listen it at regular speed and you'll pick that up.
0: <laughs> now, great. Thank you so much for this interview. I think this is probably one of the best interviews that I have got. And it's so interesting to see the smart use and the unique use of the uh, data to
1: serve the market. Thank you so much. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back any other time. So, And congrats on all the success for the podcast as well. It's an honor to be here.